Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Where Brains Meet Beauty. This week's episode features Maria Nurslamova. She's the CEO and co-founder of Scentbird and Deck of Scarlet. The day before our recording, news of Scentbird's $18.6 million investment was announced, so it was a fun moment to talk with her about success and also failure. If you missed it, last week's episode featured Francesco Clark. He's the founder of Clark's Botanicals. I hope you enjoy the shows. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I am sitting with Maria Nurislamova, CEO and co-founder of Scentbird and Deck of Scarlet. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Oh, thank you. I'm really, really happy to be here. It's so exciting to sit with you. Um, I want to tell our listeners how we met, and I think it was your publicist reached out, which is you know pretty typical, but it's not really the whole story. Um, I heard about you a few years ago from your friend, Julia Maximova, who is like a superstar realist, commercial real estate person, right? Yeah. Uh, do you guys go way back? We go, well, we actually spoke about that the other day, 10 years is, yeah, as long as I've known her. Um, she is totally flourished, but she's always been a rock star. <laughs> she taught me so much about networking, and she's a you know pretty awesome salesperson, real yeah. estate, and it's not really where I excel, so I love listening to her. And yeah, so when I first met her, and I met her at a networking event, um, we sat down for lunch, and she mentioned her friend who just launched a company called Deck of Scarlet. Like, oh, that's cool. Um, and you know that was two years ago, and like, look at what's happening now. So I can't yeah. wait to dive into the backstory. <laughs> um, but let's start with something simple. How will you be spending your day today? Um, plenty of meetings, calls. Yeah, that's basically my everyday now. <laughs> and are you like on the move? Are you doing these like calls from the car? Or are you like at your desk at the office? Mostly at the office, unless I have meetings that where I need to travel. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you are like eating lunch at your desk most days? Yep, all the time. <laughs> what about dinner at your desk? Sometimes, but um, it, it depends on the day. Sometimes I also have dinner meetings. Mm -hmm. And would you say that you are working all the time? I'm working pretty much all the time. You know, the work-life balance is a myth. <laughs> at least in my life. <laughs> and how many years has it been like that for you? Where like At least five. At okay. least. Um, okay, so we're going to dive into that deeper. But let's start um, first with um, which brand came first, Scentbird or Deck of Scarlet? Scentbird did. Okay, so tell me about its origin story. Yeah. So Scentbird is a fragrance subscription service, and uh, we like to describe it as, you know, we help people date fragrances before marrying them. So it's a very simple concept that revolves around um, a one-month supply of fragrance. So there are a lot of other rental models. If you know, if you kind of like look out there at the shared economy, at startups in general. So people instead of owning a car, they now you know get an Uber. Instead of owning a vacation home, they um, you know book something on Airbnb. And for me, Sunbird was meant to be that for beauty, right? So like it's like bite-sized beauty, things that you can actually get through within a very short time frame, and that really helps helps with discovery of the category. And I think the origin, like the reason why I wanted to build this company is because I would always end up with the wrong full-size bottle of fragrance that would just sit there and collect dust in my drawer, just reminding me how bad I am at spending money. <laughs> you know, it was not a sustainable habit. I didn't love shopping in retail for fragrance. I wished there was just you know, like a digital place I could go to to discover fragrances from the comfort of my home. 
and that um, you know that was a journey in its own right because we started by building a scent recommender. So it was a digital recommendation algorithm that would learn as much about you know the preferences of a particular individual around scent and would recommend them other things to try, right? And then uh, the monthly supply fit right into that concept because not only did we recommend things, we allowed people to try them without breaking the bank. Right. So this was five years ago. So no, Scentbird started officially. This business model started in October 14. So, so it's four almost, years, ago, almost four right. years. Yeah. And um, for this to work, you needed the cooperation of the fragrance companies. So yes and no. Uh, we originally launched as a pilot program. In the early days, as entrepreneurs, we don't always get believers, or we don't always get believers in the more established companies. Right? You might have your mentors. You certainly, you know, you might have your co-founders. Even your early employees are definitely believers. But sometimes it does take the rest of the world to kind of like catch on to your vision. So we had a lot of that at the beginning. It was very much kind of like a little bit of an uphill battle where we had to, you know, put our stake in the ground and say that we believed enough in this business idea to, um, you know, invest all of our time and energy in it, not knowing whether, you know, the big companies would ever want to partner with us. And then when we, you know, got to that proverbial product market fit, you hear a lot with tech startups, which basically means that people really wanted this, you know. American consumers really wanted this. As we started showing growth numbers, that's when the brands started recognizing value and what we bring to the table, and that's when we started getting contracts. So who were your um, early day partners? So it wasn't the big guys because they weren't believers no, yet. No, niche. So, so niche brands, like smaller companies um, like Nest, for instance, or like Juliet has a gun. A lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them with European origins because that's where perfume really comes from originally. But also a lot of kind of like the niche, small, a more artisanal, more interesting, if you will, fragrance houses, some of them like made in Brooklyn. Um, and those were the early believers. And then like the that niche category that is also now really successful at Sephora, like Commodity and Nest, those guys came around and kind of like really helped us broaden the horizon. And we started building case studies, you know, mm -hmm. getting really granular. What is it that we could deliver to the brands? And that's how we, you know, signed up for first big ones like Guerlain. Right. So your first um, partners were the entrepreneurial brands because they understood the entrepreneurial the mindset. Vision. Yeah. Right. So um, I assume you you would know that going in, right? When you started building the algorithm, that the partners were not going to be a Cody to start. Um. Well, I think. When building an algorithm, we really wanted to stay impartial. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're building a company, you always have to look five, ten years ahead, right? And imagine what what should the company be if you are the market leader. So when building the algorithm, we didn't exclude Cody's and Chanel's of the world, right? We wanted again, we wanted to be impartial and we wanted to serve the individual more so than the brand partners. You know, serve yeah. the real people. So serve the customer? Absolutely, mm -hmm. 100%. Because, you know, um, perfume is an intimidating industry. It's hard to shop for. You know, people don't feel it's, like, easy to select their next fragrance. And we really wanted to, you know, um, take the intimidation out of the category, make it friendly and fun, and uh, very accessible for the younger audience as well. Right. So are you personally fragrance-obsessed? I am, 100%. One million percent. And you always were? I always were, since I was, like, four years old. And like, what were the first fragrances that you like, you know, really remember like being devoted to? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the Soviet Union slash Russia, 
Um, and in Russia, there was not a lot of variety. I hate to say it. So there was this, you know, one fragrance that everybody would, you know, was kind of like the go-to, the staple, Cold Red Moscow. I kid you oh, not. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. wait, I have to write this down, yeah. Red Moscow. Um, it, uh, it was a little bit like Chanel Number no. 5 on the heavy side, mm -hmm. heavy, woodsy, a little spicy, uh, and definitely not for a four-year-old, as you might imagine. <laughs> but that's the only thing that my mom and my grandma would wear, and so I would sneak into the bathroom and kind of like apply it on my pulse points, because I saw them do that, imitate that. And I thought that, well, obviously my mom didn't want me to use a heavy scent when I was four and going to like a kindergarten or preschool. And so, you know, I would emerge from the bathroom, obviously smelling of her, reeking of her perfume, and she would always know. And as a kid, like as a four-year-old, I could never figure out how come she caught me, although she didn't see me <laughs> applying it. So I, I, my mom is just very smart like that. Yeah. And well, she could smell you coming. She could, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, one day, actually, my aunt... Um, she came back from Paris with like um, you know a few you know, a few fragrance bottles, and that's when I think the whole world opened up to me because before that, I lived in a world where there was just one scent and nothing else. And then all of a sudden there was a variety, something to discover and explore, and I was just like you know spend days enjoying the bottles, just looking at them, you know touching them. Mm -hmm. It's like a very visceral experience for me. Yeah. So um, Red Moscow was this an expensive purchase? It was an um, investment. Yes, more so than I mean, in the Soviet Union, there is not a lot of variety for anything. So even if you had the money, you didn't always have things to purchase. It was an investment. It was a good gift. Mm -hmm. So men would always give it to their wives. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting that, you know, that your fragrance origin story is about a lack of choice. Yeah. And what you've ended up developing in Scentbird is like the ultimate Opposite. choosing, you know, opportunity, right? Like explore, choose, play. So you yeah. went from one extreme to, you know, really like opening the door to a lot of people for the whole universe of fragrance. Yeah. Well, that was the definition of paradise for me. And I think we all are trying, you know, in our daily life build our own version of paradise for others. Right. That's um, really sweet. Thank you for sharing that. I would like to smell the red Moscow. Now I'm super curious. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it still exists. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, your, your brand just made some news. Let's talk about the news. I'm going to read it from um, Women's Wear Daily. Um, Scentbird, a subscription-based fragrance company, announced today it has raised $18.6 million, one of the largest Series A funding rounds secured by a direct-to-consumer brand led by a female chief executive officer. So that's pretty major. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, congratulations. That's awesome. So um, I need to know, and our listeners need to know, because many of them, you know, uh, perhaps have this vision for themselves and their brands in the future, um, what does it feel like to accomplish that? Um, well, actually, I mean, it feels good, obviously, but it doesn't feel like such an extraordinary accomplishment. I mean, I always, I'm one of those humans that, you know, I always am very future focused and no matter how much I achieve, the best stuff is always in the future. And I think our work with Sunbird is just beginning. I think there's so much more we can still do to make, you know, fragrance more fun and accessible in the world. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's good to now be, you know, be, you know, able to have a real marketing budget and, you know, be able to hire the people that we wanted to hire all of those years, but we had to operate on a very limited budget. So now, you know, I feel like I finally have the resources to create the vision of the world I'd like to create. So right. it feels good. So more, th it sounds like you're saying more than making news, it just feels like the reality you always envisioned just happened. Absolutely. Well, I mean, um, 
before you can bring things into your life. You kind of have to believe that it's even possible for you, that your business deserves it, that you deserve it, that you're good enough. Right? So I, I kind of have seen it coming for many years, right? And then, you know, for um, many months before the announcement came, I actually did put in the work. You know, I did have to get on the phone calls, get into meetings, pitch. So it definitely is not such a surprise. You kind of see it coming, you know. Um, so that's why I kind of like get used to that feeling. But when it's finally closed and done, it's definitely, it's good. Right. I love um, how composed and poised and calm you are about it because um, it's making me really understand how much you always believed it would just happen. And it's almost just like, you know, taking the train to work, right? Taking yeah. somebody to work. Like, it's going to happen. I'm going to take the train to work. I'm going to go to my office. Mm-hmm. I'm going to raise $18.6 million. I'm going to go to my office and work. Exactly. I'm going to buy the morning newspaper. Right, exactly. Get my coffee. <laughs> so, you know, it makes me think of this interview. Um, I think it was Oprah with Lady Gaga several years ago. And they did the interview, I don't know, in her, like, parents' living room or something. And um, Oprah was asking Lady Gaga about, like, what it feels like to, you know, kind of get to this height in her career. And her response was something like, I always saw it. I always yeah. knew, right? So, yeah. she, like, that's how like calm and centered she is around the fame. She like she always knew that she would achieve this, um, and I'm getting that kind of same vibe from you, yeah. which is really inspiring for me because <laughs> I actually let self doubt creep in. Um, I see my vision. I really do, but and I believe it. And I know it's real, mm-hmm. but the pathway to get there, I like clog it up with my own garbage. Mm-hmm. You know, this own nonsense in my head. What, what has been helpful for me is focusing on the passion and why you're doing what you're doing. And that's what really helps you, you know, um, get through the doubt, kind of discard that. Um, it, it is very dangerous focusing on your fears because mm-hmm. you, you can make yourself believe all of the things that are really not true and don't have anything to do with reality. So every time I have that little, you know, little weed that's starting to sprout in the form of a fear or self-doubt, and I have them, you know, all the time, we have to catch them when they're early and not believe them and be like, okay, sure, I thank you for your feedback, fear. I know you're trying to protect me, but I want to focus on my passion and what I'm here to create. And if all of my thoughts are around that creation and what else can I do to make that vision a reality, then there is no room for fear. Because at any given time, your brain can only focus on one thought. And you get to choose whether it's a positive mm-hmm. one or a negative one. And if, the, if you have only, you know, um, you don't ever allow yourself to think one negative thought, then basically all of your frequency, all of your radio program, if you will, is only positive all the time. Right. Yeah. It, um, I like your reference to weed because I am a gardener. I'm a, I call myself a farmer. I have a small backyard in Aww. New Jersey and I farm. I mean, it's not really That's farming, wonderful. but I feel like I'm farming. Yeah. yeah. We picked our first raspberries yesterday. Congratulations. Thank you. It's so exciting. That's exciting. And um, if you pull the weeds early, they're easy to pull out of the ground. They just pop right out. Yep. But if I let them sit there for a while, then I like have to dig deep and dig deep and do a lot of work. To Absolutely. Them. And they could even harm you good plants too right. in the process, which yes. is never something that you want. Right. Okay. This is cool. Okay. I can do this. I can practice. Um, okay. So let's talk about life as a CEO. Are you traveling all the time? I'm traveling for work. Um, yes. You know, conferences, speaking engagements, things like that. Um, I'm looking at factories as well, um, you know, for a line of products. It's fun. Yeah. And do you have a lot of people on your team now? So, yes, we have, I mean, depends, right? Depends on who you ask. For a startup, maybe at our stage, we have almost 100. Oh, my gosh. But we have a lot of remote people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're full-time, our employees, just not in the New York City headquarters. Mm-hmm. And um, 
that means you're operating some sense as a virtual business because they're distant? <clears throat> In some ways. I mean, we still have the New York City headquarters where, you know, most of the management is. Um, but we, you know, outsourcing is a way to build a tech business these days. Um, and especially, you know, certain like I'm Russian, you know, two of my co-founders. Um, two out of three of my co-founders are Russian as well. And Russian engineers, tech engineers, are some of the best in the world. And so we hire engineers only you know, in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And it's really helpful because, you know, A, we get them. You know, they're really rock stars mm -hmm. in general for the global market, but a lot more affordable. And they, they never leave. They retain perfectly. You know, they, it's ridiculous. They don't even require health insurance. It's like, I feel like I just won the jackpot of just being <laughs> Russian. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. You already have your network. You utilize your network. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's talk about the fragrance business because mm -hmm. for so many years, it's been really, uh, from my point of view, um, dull and stagnant. And I don't mean that there haven't been beautiful fragrances that have launched. Yeah. But the um, business model, you know, it seems really um, dated. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, a few years ago and likely the, around the time you launched Scentbird where I've met entrepreneurs who see that as a huge opportunity and like don't care that it's been done a certain way for decades. Um, it must be so fun to shake up a really stagnant old business model. Some parts of it are certainly fun. Some parts of it are slightly challenging. Um, I mean, the, you know, the passion makes it all worth it. Um, you're absolutely right. I think the industry, every industry is being shaken up yeah. by digital. And fragrances kind of like are a little bit late to the game. And I think all of the more traditional brands thought they didn't have to innovate, right? Thought they could just do a traditional new launch um, twice a year and, you know, put another model as a face of it and, you know, the consumer will keep buying. Um, I think the consumer is looking for authenticity on the market, you know, and um, it's actually an interesting shift. So it used to be that, you know, like in fragrance, you know, sex sells, mm -hmm. right? And now I think we're seeing this whole new generation where, you know, sex and perfumery doesn't matter. You know, like people are living with maybe sensuality mm -hmm. or empowerment, you know, so like all kinds of different or like just being you. As opposed right. to being sexy for somebody else, it's actually a really interesting phenomenon. So we do a lot of research in our audience, and women, you, you know, wear fragrances for themselves. They want to make themselves happy, not their guy, mm -hmm. not the person next to them. Which I think is the epitome of female power. You know, um, they're really comfortable in their skin. They really are. You know, they think a fragrance is very emotional and like as a big source of like their inner happiness. And, you know, I certainly love being a part of that movement. But you're certainly seeing, you know, in general in fragrance outside of Sunbird, uh, you know, move towards smaller sizes, bigger collections as opposed to one signature scent. Mm -hmm. So people don't want to commit as much. They want to change fragrances with the seasons, you know, um, try out all the new trends. You're also starting to see a lot of alternative forms in fragrance, you know, like the little brushes, fragrance brushes that like leave a scent, deposit a scent, um, you know, solids or back, like sticks, all kinds of other fun things that you can do around fragrance, scented hair mists, you know, right. they're kind of like penetrating in all different kinds of categories. So you're absolutely right. This is the time where, you know, it is a fun time to be innovating in the category and being part of that movement. You mentioned the marketing aspects of fragrance, the traditional ones, and I was actually just watching, I don't know, TV, probably like The Real Housewives, because this is sort of mm -hmm. all I watch. And um, a commercial came on for a very well-known, established prestige fragrance brand, and it was so jarring to me because it was so overtly sexual mm. that it felt like 
weird now. It yeah. feels dated and old. Yeah. And un it almost feels really uncomfortable to yep. see that because it's like sort of like what I think of in beauty as the old guard of a man, a man's point of view on what women, you know, should she be doing or what they're doing, which is obviously like so distant from my point of view and my agency's point of view, which is like yeah. we're a group of women. This is like our vision of beauty. And it felt so jarring. And I was so excited that it felt so jarring because it means that everything's changing. Like that yeah. brand didn't change, but everything around it has. Yeah. Well, and, um, I, you know, it's, it, it's very hard for the traditional large companies with a lot of legacy to switch gears. Mm -hmm. It's coming for them, they know it, but it'll take them a few years to snap out of that, you know, like selling, using sexuality to sell to women. Right. Yeah. And there's this, um, you know, we've seen this for many years, like the brands, the legacy brands spending like millions of dollars creating their film, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yes. their, you know, film that gets sliced up into a 15 second commercial mm -hmm. with a Macy's tag at the end. Yes. Um, and they're weird and odd and strange and they're not really, there's no narrative. Um, and it's almost like the director just like got a budget and did whatever he wanted. Um, and it also feels so dated and I'm so glad it feels so dated because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. I think we're going to see a lot more authenticity with consumer goods in general and, and fragrance in particular as well. Yeah. It's like real exciting. stories. Yes. It's a lot more relatable. Yeah. It's relevant. Like, um, I think that fragrance for so long has been about fantasy, which, and I, I do believe in many ways that there are fantastical aspects of it, um, but not to the detriment of me as a human being, right? And I feel like that's Absolutely. where we've been like, well, I'm not here in this world that you've created in film mm -hmm. that's bizarre and strange, which means like, well, I don't fit in, right? And I think the world is asking for the opposite. I want to feel connected. Absolutely. And you want something for your daily life, something that can go and, like a scent that can go and work out with you when yes. you're doing a yoga class. Yes. You know? Something and it, that can go to the office with you. Right. But so with Scentbird, I can afford to have a fragrance wardrobe. Yeah. Right? Um, in and fact, you're encouraged to have a fragrance wardrobe. Right. So like I couldn't do that a few years ago. Yeah. I would be spending, I guess now we're at like 120 right? A bottle. Um, a yeah. bottle. Mm -hmm. um, that's a commitment. It is a commitment, and they never run out. They're like, <laughs> like they'll go bad before running out. That's that's the yeah. That's right. That's awesome. Okay, so let's talk about life with partners. So I run my own agency solo. I have no one, you know. To, yeah. To, well, there's good things and bad things, but I, the good thing is I have no one that I have to share um, the vision with. Mm -hmm. um, so I could change a daily, right? If I wanted to, you have, there's four of you in total. Correct. Um, I would imagine it takes a lot of time and effort to make the relationship smooth. Yes, you go through that in the early days of the business, though. Um, there is that formation period. Mm -hmm. And not only do you have to have individual relationships with each co-founder, collectively you have to have a team right, that works and that can be productive on a day-to-day -day basis. If there is a lot of internal conflict two years in, it's probably not going to work. So yes, in the early days, you know, you learn each other's working styles. You learn each other's strengths and weaknesses as well, right? Mm -hmm. So I think being a good partner is not just about recognizing what your partner is good at, but also recognizing when they need a helping hand. And one of the things that I really appreciate about my team is we come closer when, when the times get hard. Like, um, I remember in the early days of Sandberg, prior to us launching this business model, uh, you know, everything that we tried failed. And that was when we really formed that bond because I ultimately knew that, you know, these three people are going to be the last ones standing with me. 
if every you know everybody else like throws stones at us, it doesn't really matter because they'll be there. So I definitely felt very supported, and I hope that they felt supported by me as well. I mean, that's cool. So um, tell us about Deck of Scarlet because that yeah. has an interesting business model as well. Thank you. So Deck of Scarlet is uh, a makeup brand and a makeup subscription in one. Every two months, we partner with a top YouTube or Instagram influencer and makeup artist. Um, they become our artist in chief, and they help us curate a collection of makeup. Right now, it comes in the form of a full face makeup palette um, that would enable someone, you know, our consumers, to create a full face of makeup, like a full look. So the palette, each palette would have three eyeshadows, two lipsticks, two cheek products, and, you know, liners or mascaras, whatever else is needed to complete that look. And, you know, the, the reason this idea came around, this brand was born, is because, I mean, we live in the, in the era of social media, and I've always been fascinated with YouTube beauty influencers. And I think they make, you know, they, it, it, for me, I use that as an educational tool to teach myself how to do makeup, right, in the, when I was, you know, a lot younger. And uh, one of the things for me was, you know, I loved good makeup. But every time you're trying to recreate a, you know, a video of a top YouTuber, they would list like 15, 20 products underneath that video. So it's a real, real splurge. Like you'd be out a thousand dollars if you wanted to try a particular look. And so I was always wishing that somebody could just create a makeup kit that would be affordable. And Deck of Scarlet is $29.95 every two months. So it's under $30, but premium quality makeup blends well, you know, one stroke payoffs, all of the good things that you would expect from a prestige makeup brand. And it's all color curated for you, right? And our artists in chief also come um, come up with tutorials, you know, daytime looks, nighttime looks, everything in between. They show you all the versatile ways you can use that palette. It's also 100% travel friendly because you basically just take one palette and then maybe your foundation mascara and you're good to go. You don't need anything else. So it's been a lot of fun developing that, um, that product and you know, the brand. Uh, it's been the ride of my life. So are they um, short runs, like you're making a limited supply of each kit? Absolutely. Limited edition everything. That's awesome. And every edition is numbered. So you can kind of like line them up on the shelf, kind of like uh, the magazines, uh-huh. right? So it would be like edition one, edition two. That's fun. Yeah. How many editions are you up to now? So we uh, <laughs> we have 11 in production. So far, we have launched eight. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so we have more to see. Yes. And you said more it's every two coming. months it's a different partnership. Correct. Yes. Um, the reason it's a different partnership is because every influencer we partner with, you know, they help create the colors, they help us, you know, um, they lead the production process. Um, it's very much their vision. And so it helps us, you know, bring in something new every month. Somebody else's vision, somebody else's baby. Right. Know. So then when it sells out, it's it's gone? It's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have you noticed like a black market for secondary sales? Some, yes. <laughs> yes, some. Probably more to come. What were you doing before all of this? What was your career journey? Yeah, so um, before Sunbird, I ran a creative agency slash dev shop. So we would, you know, specialize in uh, creating apps, websites for, um, you know, startups and small businesses. Um, and I was, you know, I was one of the two founders. So I was doing everything from like sales, account management, creative direction. Um, I did that for a few years. I had an event planning business. Uh, before that, I was in college, and in college, I was a speed reading coach. Whoa! Yeah, really? of, yeah, and I loved it. It was really good. I, I just, it was a very fun. You know, paid really well. <laughs> you, were, you taught people how to speed read. How to read faster? Yes, mm-hmm. yes, and not just individuals, groups of people as well. So, like public classes. It was a lot That's of so fun. fascinating. Okay, but you've been a serial entrepreneur. Yeah, so I've, I've also had a couple of failed things under my belt. And well, I think I like, want to hear about those. You, you do? Yeah. 
Oh my god. Um, so one was supposed to be um, um, a startup in fashion that never really. Um, so the idea was, I think that I've always um, been fascinated with that idea of choice. And so in fashion, obviously, there is like you know a lot of choices to be made in digital. And um, I wanted to create a fun voting platform where people could get to what their personal style is by rating two images at a time, right? Uh -huh. So like you just look at the image on the left and the image on the right, and you're like, well, I would pick that, or I would pick that. And then mm -hmm. you know you would rate about a hundred sets of images, and it would analyze your preferences and be able to build your wardrobe like a true stylist, like recommend things to you. So this is genius. Why didn't it take? Off. I did not. I don't think I was ready for it mm -hmm. to take off. In, on, in so many levels, um, I might not have had the right team. Mm -hmm. One thing about the team that I have learned over the years is you have to pick people who have another skill set, a skill set that you do not, right? For that business, I really needed a tech co-founder that I didn't have. And uh, for me, I'm like more of a business co-founder, right? Biz dev. Um, not having a person who could build that algorithm is a recipe for disaster. Right. You know, with Sunbird, I started with, you know, two tech co-founders, you know, one on the product side, design side, one on the actual engineering side. And, you know, coupled with, you know, my talents and the talents of Rachel, who's our uh, CMO and brand relationships, like that was a perfect m match because, you know, we all kind of came from different worlds. Um, that fashion startup was just, I think I was too green. I didn't know those lessons. Like I had to learn them the hard way. Right. Okay. So I think it's genius. Well, thank you. And I would encourage you to pursue it when you have some time. <laughs> no, really, because um, for someone like me, I mean, I think I'm also like the beauty customer. Um, I appreciate that there's a lot of choice out there, but it's super overwhelming to me. It is. Right. Yeah. And I, um, from a personal style perspective, I know I knew who I was in my 20s, and then I had kids, and my body changed, and mm -hmm. my mindset changed, and my you know preferences changed, and I'm still trying to figure out who I am from a style perspective. Yeah. Right? It takes like a lot of investment. I don't really have the time in, to, to invest in it. So I love this idea. I want to hear about another failed idea. Another failed idea. Oh my God. So I wanted to build a consulting business um, to help American companies expand into Russia because as a Russian immigrant, that's what you do. And um, I, it was really early when I came into the U.S. and um, I uh, was talking to an American hedge fund that wanted to open up an office in Russia. They had offices in five countries. And so it was basically my, my value proposition would be, you know, I'll help you set up like the legal entity, everything that you need, get you the right resources in the local market. Um, and that was like one of my humble attempts. I almost, we were like very, very close to signing a contract. And then it was basically, you know, a, like the stock market crashed by like 500 basis points. <laughs> this one, one of those years uh, was 2008. And they decided, the hedge fund, that like I spent like nine months to close on this like consulting uh, arrangement, decided to not expand into Russia because it was like a risky thing and they were like losing a lot of business in general. And that, that kind of like is the story of my failed consulting practice. It never happened because I like, okay. And then it was a really, really hard time because the partner that um, I had for the business decided to quit. And I was just also my very good friend. Um, and so it was like a double heartbreak because mm. the business didn't work. The friendship went sour for like a year or two as we were living through that trauma. So that was not fun. I guess, uh, I guess the message here is it is okay to fail 
as long as, and, and sometimes failure is the best thing that can happen to you. You could still be on your path and fail. And I think as a society, we have to get really, really comfortable with it. And I think U.S. is actually really good at accepting failure, as opposed to the culture that I come from. Russia is not. That's why you're not going to see too many entrepreneurs, because God forbid you fail, it's like a stigma on your family, you know what right. I mean? In the U.S., it's a lot more open, and that's why it's very, a lot easier to create here, to be an entrepreneur here. That's why you see a lot of like people even like who are freelancing here, like yes. you know, having their own projects, because I think as a society, it's a lot more receptive. But I still think we can take it uh, on a personal level, right? It's still, sometimes you don't want to fail, and you're like, well, what are my friends going to think? What am I family going to think. Um, and so I think we have to get it out of our system and knowing that failure is actually just a learning curve. Right. I, um, I think that the challenge for most people here is when you're on a track and in a sort of like competitive, um, really ambitious, like, you know, group of friends, you know, cohorts, peers, whatever, the idea of failure feels like, um, all your stock just dropped, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, at least for me, allowing myself to be vulnerable and say, I tried it and it didn't work. It does feel like daggers mm -hmm. to the heart and the soul. Um, and I've always been more concerned about less like my feelings around it than like, what is everybody else going to feel? Yeah. Right? The social pressure. Absolutely. Um, and I think it just because you know, like it's kind of another self-doubt thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, if I felt like really proud of myself and confident that I tried, I wouldn't really care about what anybody else has to say I knew would be part of my journey. But because I'm so obsessed with, you know, other people's point of view, or at yeah. least I have been, I'm trying to, you know, evolve out of that. Well, mm -hmm. Being vulnerable is really scary. It is. But you know what I've learned? Uh, when I failed my first business, my community, actually, so a lot of people had no idea even had a business, so they, there's no way they could have, you know, had an opinion about me failing. And then the people that were in my life were actually really supportive and helping me out. And so I thought that failure feels a lot scarier than it actually is. And having gone through it so many times, I actually welcome it because, you know, people are really a lot less judgmental. Well, maybe, I mean, we are all really kind of like uh, stuck up in our own little world. So to even get outside of your zone and get into somebody else's to even have an opinion about their failure, that's like a lot of work, right? <laughs> it's so interesting. Um, I haven't thought about it that way, but I love that. Okay, so my last question yeah. for you, um, and we started talking about this before. You said that, like, you know, raising eighteen point six million just kind of felt like part of a day's work, right, or many months and years worth of work. But um, there must have been some celebration, some acknowledgement between you and your partners. How did you honor that raise? So um, our investors did take um, us out um, to dinner. Uh, and they were the ones that wanted to celebrate. Uh, and again, I'm like one of um, those people, like every time I get to a certain level, I feel like, well, there's nothing to celebrate. We're already here, right? Like what, what's to celebrate? And sometimes my partners, uh, I need my partners to remind me that it has to happen. I mean, we, we had a little toast with the team as well because they worked very, very hard. Everybody on our team did. I don't think that it's, you know, it's it's not an accomplishment of one person. I mean, we're shipping to thousands of thousands of people and it's, you know, from contribution of people who are packing the orders, contribution of people who are, you know, running the ads, contribution of people who are building the site, you know, mm -hmm. debugging it, mm -hmm. people who are dealing with complaints because that's, you know, the, the growth of a, of a business, you will get complaints. 
Um, so, yes, I guess, I mean, there was um, a little bit of a celebration, but it was back to work next day. Right. So I've been practicing, and I'm going to share this with you and our listeners, uh, the art of honoring these moments mm -hmm. because I have a tendency to just move on to the next thing. But to um, work my way out of perfectionism and self-doubt, I really need to train my brain and my heart to feel those wins mm -hmm. in a bigger way so that when I'm having kind of a shitty day, I can look back at that feeling and channel that feeling to get mm -hmm. me out of the hole. So mm -hmm. um, I've been trying hard to just do, like, when we get a, a win of, like, a new client that we're really excited about, like, we stick a candle and a muffin, like, whatever it is, just to, like, have that moment to honor it. Mm -hmm. um, because I need those feelings. I need those good feelings on the days that kind of stink. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's, it's a good habit to adopt. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, candles candles and just, like, jumping and dancing. Like, just, jumping like, let's just dancing. all jump around and dance. Yeah, for, like, two, like for, like, five seconds, ten seconds. I like that. Yeah. I like the candle, too. <laughs> I'll so, adopt it. thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. It was so fun to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Maria. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.